Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Once again, this is Dan coming to you from the wood shop at DTM Enterprises. Uh, speaking of that, DTMWW.net, uh, Woodwork and Handyman Services. Uh, if you're here in the Metro Louisville area, give me a call. Find that website. You can find me. I'm a fairly available dude. You can find that on Facebook, Instagram, all kinds of places. DTM Woodwork. Uh, go to Amazon and get 12-Step Spiritual Recovery. Uh, that's a book by James Christopher Cohn. It is the 12 steps for everyone and a deeper dive uh, into the 12 steps if you're currently already uh, familiar and, and work these principles in your lives. Uh, I've become less and less ashamed of saying this. I would not. It's not a shame thing. It's just a, well, I don't even know what word to wrap around. I'll just say it the way I want to say it because this is my podcast. I get to say what I want to say. It is the magnum opus, the great compendium the Optimus Prime version of the 12 Steps. It really is a deep dive. It's got 80, almost 90 years of tribal knowledge uh, wrapped up into the book. And, uh, and, 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 and we're, we've got movements going on in Louisville and it's helping people. So uh, I'm tickled to promote it and tickled to be a part of that movement. Uh, the music here is by Darren Frank. His, uh, we will, it'll be the intro music and the outro music. I've kind of settled on a particular song. So that out of the way, I will introduce my guest today. I'm, uh, we're having a double header today, and I really juiced about that. Uh, this will be the second time I've had to sponsor or sponsee uh, pair come in and tell their stories on the same day, and it kind of works pretty well. Uh, it's, it's a neat thing to do, and I think it's a neat thing for a sponsor and sponsee to come do together, and then we get to do this thing where we uh, continue to practice these we principles of doing this we stuff together like that. So... Uh, I've known Brian a little while, but not not a long time. Um, I do recall that uh, I kind of I kind of am the communication director for my home group, uh, and they're really not a particular service position. If you look at the pamphlets that says communication director, but I've kind of found myself to be that, and so I'm the guy when somebody wants to join the home group or they want to do this or do that. Uh, I'm the one people tend to end up uh, landing on, and I don't remember if it's a text or a call, but Brian called me one night. I'm really good with names and faces, and I didn't recall his face from the meeting, uh, but he talked to me for a minute and was interested in joining our home group, and uh, and right off the bat, once we actually talked to each other, uh, I, I, I gelled with him really quickly. I could tell he was a, a down-home kind of regular dude. You know, we just talked, flowed, and uh, well, there, was never, there was never any, uh, you know, sometimes just there's a little bit of uh, intrepidation a little hesitancy you know you're talking to somebody you not talked to before but that's not what happened when he and I talked on the phone the first time it was uh it was straight to uh like like we'd been friends that's the way I felt like we'd been friends for a long time right from the get-go so uh he joined in and 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 he he would tell part of his story when he comes on in uh, when he talks about it but uh he landed here and looking for a new home group and, and landed with the spiritual underground and uh, tickled to death to have him and uh he just I, i've listened i've heard him talk a couple times man and, and when he shares it's just uh powerful stuff and i've been wanting to get him in here for quite some time and we've finally been able to do that uh another friend of ours will talk about persistence and uh around this podcast sometimes i need a little persistence to get people uh uh in the chair my little notification bell went off and i'm going to silence that there we go. So, welcome, Brian, to the Spiritual Underground Podcast, man. I'm so glad to have you here. We had breakfast this morning, Billy and, and Brian and I, and uh, now we're sitting around the podcast table getting ready to listen to uh, Brian tell his story. How you doing today, man? I'm good, brother. Thanks for having me. Are you excited? You look it. I don't know. Yeah, a little bit. I always get a little bit antsy at the beginning when I start to give a talk. Yeah, it is. and uh, It's good for me because what I do is really give up. Yeah. 
and I say, I don't want me to do this. I don't want you to do this. Yeah, give me some help. Let yeah. me uh, speak. For, help me speak from my heart right Makes over my head. Every time, so I always give up. Yeah, well, I will watch it every time I sit here and uh, watch this. Do this. I watch the microphone. You know, at first people are real conscious about it, and they'll look at it and they'll see it, and they're like conscious to talking to it and that, and and then after a little bit they begin to roll, and then the microphones. It's like the microphones disappear, and it's just me and you sitting here, and you're just talking to me like we were doing at the restaurant across the table from one another and uh and i like to watch i always take note of that shift that happens in the podcast when a guy uh lets that go and that's similar to what i was saying earlier there's also that time when i can tell guys running out of gas or whatever you know the story is beginning to end and almost if you go back and listen you almost every time will hear this sigh and it's a sigh of like a a very uh um it's not exasperated sigh it's a very calming like a And they're done, you know. They have said what they needed to say today and uh, have that completeness. Like I, I, someplace else we do some things when we're done talking and we say, uh, uh, I'm complete at the moment. And they are complete. So uh, I love to sit here and do it. So how do you want to start, man? Well, uh, we'll do start. One thing that's really important, and I've kind of dropped off of this, is uh, I think it's important that we start with our sobriety dates because that's a very important day to this man anyway. Uh, my sobriety date is February 1st, 2015. February the 1st. That one is yours. Mine is uh, January the 1st, 2015. Yeah, I knew we were right there together. Yeah, New Year's Day. Yeah. We got a guest, a yellow dog, come looking in the window. <laughs> Hopefully he, he will leave us alone a little bit. Yeah, I think he likes me. Yeah. Dogs like me. So, uh, how do you want me to do this? Just the way I always do it. However, man, what I like to do is make sure, you know, at some point I like to hear about it. I personally like this, you know, we, we say in the book, right, what was like, what happened and what's like now. And, yeah. I, and somebody said, I, I got a little thing in my head. I think that is right. It's not what I was like. It's what it was like. Is that correct? And, uh, yeah, so what? It's what I was like. It's what, what I was, I was like. like. Is that what it says? Because I don't okay. know what it was like. I, uh, okay. So I just know my perception of. So now that I've thoroughly, thoroughly blasted that, whatever it says in there, you understand the point what it used yeah. to past what happened to change things and what it's like now so but i like to make sure that we get back into some of that little bit of childhood stuff because i think it's important that we talk about the fact that i mean i know and maybe not every guest knows but it seems to be a thing that everybody knows that they were you know had something different about them when they were little way before they took their first drink okay. we can start there so however you want to go man so, this is uh, your story you know it best uh, my life started off in uh, eastern kentucky and uh, really my first memory that i can think of the one that comes to ring a bell is uh, my mom and dad <clears throat> were sitting in the living room, and my dad had been in Vietnam. He's a drill sergeant. He's a real hard ass. As a matter of fact, that was pretty instilling because, you know, he was the first man in my life that I started learning. I started picking, which I'll get into later in inventory. I started picking on these beliefs, like this is what I believe Brian has to look like as a man, right? And I start mimicking these things because I don't know what to do, and I. And I'm really unsettled. I'm really uneasy. I'm restless, irritable, and discontent as a child. and don't even know what that is. You know, I always felt uh, uncomfortable. So they're in the living room for a long time, and Mom keeps ushering me out and ushering me out. And I keep going, Dad's crying, and I've never seen him cry before. So it's mm. a hard ass. And uh, come to find out, he'd been having an affair, and uh, she found out about it, and they were getting divorced. Oh. And uh, so when I say we started in Eastern Kentucky, uh, I didn't live there all very long. And we started moving. And mom had to move. She did the best she could to uh, give us a place to live. And, and we bounced around a lot. And and, um, and dad stayed there and moved in with uh, the new woman. 
you know. And that was a – at first I didn't know anything about it. I'm a child. All I knew was I was picked up and taken away from my home, my friends, my family. Yeah. And we bounced around a lot over several years' time. I remember living in a basement apartment. I remember it was dark and cold and damp. And Mom, we were we didn't have much money, so Mom made chili all winter. And she did add beans, and she'd add beef. She had a gallon of milk and a pack of salt and crackers. And I didn't eat chili until I was about 25 years old. <laughs> you know? Enough chili. That's enough damn chili. So I didn't know these things at first, and um, but I always knew that uh, there was just something in me that just wasn't settled. I just... I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin, as I heard it said a lot of times, you know. Right. That's it. And I had Bell my Ringer. alcoholism. I'm, I've heard everybody's got their own way of looking at this. For me personally, I'm confident that I was born one. I didn't grow into it. I didn't drink myself into it. I was born one. I was born with a disease of alcoholism. I'm surrounded by it on all sides. It is generational. Uh, both my mom and my dad's side, it goes back several generations that I know of. And uh, so... As we moved around, she dated a few different men, and, and I began to, uh, you know, have to try to, and as we bounced in different places and different schools, I didn't know where who I was or where I was or where I fit in, and um, or who I thought I, who I was supposed to be. And when I went back home to the mountains, that was my home, and those people knew me, and I could just mm. be right. And I didn't have to wear as, you know, later we wear these, and my 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 facades, my masks began very early in life. You know, as I started having to go through trying to act like this person, or act like that, who I thought you wanted me to be, so that you would like me, so that I'd be okay. Right, right. Because if I'm not, if if you don't think that I'm okay, then I'm not okay, and I'm not enough. And that is, and that has been my um, the right at the core of my disease my whole life, from my very early childhood. I can look back now and see it. At that time, of course, I could not see right. it. Right. It's all rearview mirror now. Right. See, hindsight's always 20. Yeah. Right. So uh, so going home, you know, back to the mountains, and today that's still what I feel at home. Um, that's the one place I could be me, you know. And uh, I didn't feel judged, and I didn't feel uh, the things that I would. Because we bounced around. We went from Britta. We came on the mountains and went from Britta. Richmond ended up finally in Lexington. Um I was a small kid, and then, and you know, I was a kind child. For the person I turned into being, that's that's all because I was a very kind child. Uh, my son's that way, very loving kind. And I hope he, I hope he stays that way and doesn't. The world doesn't change him like he did me, mm. or I allowed it to, not knowing. Although that is his journey. I have the same hopes for mine. You know, and all I can do is walk the walk I walk, and set an example that I said, and. Um, so when we moved to Lexington, I'd got in that period. I think I was from right, right around middle school going into high school. And I was short and chunky, like round, you know. And, it's, and I got picked on and bullied on a lot. And uh, and I remember I just hated it. And my mother told me just recently that when I'd come home from my dad's, when we get back to the mountains, that she had, she looked she didn't look forward to it because there was about two days of hell. I was just a heather. Hmm. You know, and I was a good kid, but, I mean, for two days I was just hard to handle. And I got thinking about that and breathing with it, and I told her, I said, Mom, I hated it. I mean, I did not want to come back to that place. You know, I just, I wanted to stay back there where I could just be bright. You know, and I didn't, and, and, and I was accepted. And I didn't have that irritable restless discontent all the time. Although I had it when I was there, knowing I had to come back. Yeah. I'd have it on every Sunday before school every Monday. Like, I couldn't ever enjoy. So all my life, I've been haunted by these two demons, right? The past and the future. Right. 
my whole life. Um, and, 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 and remorse and guilt and regret from the past and fear of the future. And I would stay all day Sunday locked, balled up and locked up because I didn't want to go to school on Monday. And I couldn't even enjoy the day that I, or the moment that I was in. Right. And that pretty much sums up my whole life right there, up to the point that I got here in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's that interesting because we carry that. I think we carry some Sunday night vibe all the way in adulthood, you know, in the workplace kind of thing, too, oh, yeah. you know, where you're like, you know, Sunday night's like, God damn, got to go to work again tomorrow. I caught myself this morning meditation thinking about tomorrow. Yeah. I got to go to work and I got to drive. And I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. Mara ain't here yet. <laughs> uh, I know how to, I know how to, and I know how to, I got something to practice, a different solution yeah, for this. Today, exactly. You know? So, uh, so I got picked on a lot. And then uh, my stepdad, my mother got married. And I think I was about 10 or 12 and to a really good dude and um, still married to him today. And he was <laughs> in construction and I see he took me, he loved me just like his own son. And he still does today. We have a family construction business actually. And, um, I can remember sitting on his lap on the dozers. Oh, really? Uh, cool. I drive across for reclamation jobs and they did explosives and all that cool stuff. And that's where I was first introduced to that. And I was probably, and I'd drive the truck and I'd, I'd smoke a cigar cause he smoked a cigar once again, you know, I'm, trying to find out who Brian is, where Brian's supposed to be so that Brian will be okay, that people will like me. Because just who I am is not enough. Right. Right. If you know who I am, you really understand or feel or learn who I will, then you won't like me and you'll, you'll, you'll get away from me. And that's my constant fear. It's just this, this ingrained thing in my selfish self-centeredness. So um, they get married. Um, like I said, I would go on a job side stuff. And somewhere between... He was a sophomore, junior year. I go on a road job and work all summer, and I hit puberty. I was late to puberty. And I shot from like five foot two and round to tall, lean, muscular, six foot tall. And I decided I wasn't going to take it anymore. So the bully, the one that became, was being bullied, became the bully. Mm. I can relate with that too. And uh, I started fighting everybody, you know, and fighting everything. Uh, rules. Rules were big. When we got this thing called a peculiar mental twist, the big book talks about, you know, an exception to the rule. And I believe, therefore, non-alcoholic, but that exception to the rule can be anywhere from, well, I don't need to rub speed limit. I don't yeah. want to a seatbelt. Uh, that's what uh, you say to do this. Showing up to work on time. Yeah, right. hell, I mean, you know, I do more than everybody else. Yeah. So. And, um, and, I, and all that started really showing itself. But let me back up just a little bit. Before all this, so when I'd go back to the mountains, I'm sitting there with my cousin. I'm 12 years old. And we uh, <clears throat> were way up in East Kentucky, <clears throat> and we had one of those satellites that looked like a UFO had landed in the field next door. <laughs> and you had to holler because you had to move it just as like an eighth of an inch or sixteenth, and you went too far, you'd lose your channel. To get it aimed. And how we really learned how to dial it in was a Playboy channel. You know, you could get it when grandparents were asleep, and you'd have to holler, turn this a little more. No, go the other back, way. Back, back, yeah, yeah, back, back, back. And uh, so my grandmother and my grandfather, I have no – they drank very much alcoholically. I was just a child. I know my grandmother was. And we lived in, they lived in the Dry County. <clears throat> so Dry County, you can't buy alcohol at all. <clears throat> what I found out later, you can get more alcohol in Dry County than you can in Wake County. You just got to know the right people. So my third cousin, which had been my grandfather, the first cousin, made the best moonshine in three counties. So we always had moonshine at the house. And my grandmother kept some in the cupboard in the kitchen. And I remember, I don't remember, it's like I went blank on the, all the hangovers and the throwing up in the morning and the wailing and the whining and the and my grandfather come in and my grand I'm six foot two, 
about 235 today. My grandfather was every bit my height and but bigger. And my grandmother was five foot tall, predominantly Cherokee Indian woman. I don't remember him coming in on the porch and just knocking her off the porch. See, I didn't, it's like I didn't remember those things. I just remember when they started to take that drink, their, their eyes would light up and a glow would come in and their faces would... Uh, their faces would relax and the smile would come on and the laughter would get louder and I thought I want that right there that's what I want so I went in there and I took a big and I'm telling my cousin I said I'm going to go in here and take a drink of the shine and see what it's all about and my dad would give me a drink or two of beer along the way when I was young but I never you know I don't remember anything except it tasted bad and I went in there and took a big chug of that shine and I drank it and it started going down, and my nose hair was burning, my eyes burning, my mouth burning, my throat burning. It went all the way down to my stomach, my stomach burned. Come to find out later, my grandma told me when it was good shine, it only burnt when it hit bottom. When it was hot shine, it burned all the way down. That was some hot shine. <laughs> and, it, and, um, and I went in there, and I was coughing and hacking. I told my cousin, I said, I don't know why in the hell anybody ever drink that. I'll never drink it yep. again. Well, in the, in the doctor's opinion, he talks about we have this thing called the phenomenon of craving. So what happens when I when I take a drink of alcohol is I take another drink. Yep. I get thirsty. And the more I drink, the more I want. You know, I've been so drunk that I couldn't crawl and I was still thirsty. I've laid in the hospital bed. They had me handcuffed to the bed and because uh, I'm too drunk to take to jail and I'm still thirsty. So I took a drink and I sat there for a minute and I don't remember much else about that night. And uh I know why now is I went back in there again and got, you know, the phenomenon of craving kicked in. I went and got another and I ended up getting drunk that night. And I ran into my cousin a few years ago, and, and uh, she reminded me of that night. Oh, yeah. Her mother had died, actually. It was at a funeral. Wow. She said, do you remember that? And I said, vaguely. And she said, do you remember the next morning, your mama getting mad at Papa for drinking it? And I said, no, but I'm sure I let him take it. Yeah. <laughs> I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I didn't really touch it again, you know. I, I went back to Lexington. Um, I didn't touch it again really until I was somewhere between 15, 16 years old. When I came that that summer, I went on the road. It didn't say though that you talk about. It. I never touched it again until I was about fifteen or sixteen. You know, yeah, I mean, that's like a long time <laughs> yeah. for me. You know, because <laughs> later on, you know, I mean, I'll never. I still don't have a driver's license, but you know. I, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and actually, the next time around, I got it was a, a cherry vodka, and it was a bootlegger. Bootleggers are easy, man. Dry counties, you could, they didn't matter. You don't have an age limit, and you don't have a day or night time either. Yeah, right. You know, there's back. You know, the, the blue laws. Right? There's no blue laws in dry counties. You'd pull up to the bootleggers, and they had a trailer, and they had those big metal fences like uh, in a junkyard, and there's in and an out, and you'd pull in, and you'd have a car in front of you, and you could they could bring it out. You'd order through the window, and they'd bring it out the steps to the front door as you pulled up and you pay them it was a dollar a beer i don't know if you ever had a beer get cold and then get hot and then get cold again but that's a lot of what you got or whatever else they had and you might have the car in front of you mean and the sheriff sitting behind you and all where you get liquor and ain't nobody going to jail hmm. you know that's just the way it was and that cold and hot myth thing never bothered me a lick i know i've never subscribed to that if it got hot in the trunk and it was sitting there for a couple of days and i throw some ice on it it was just as good as when it was fresh to me yeah i mean you know if i choke one or two down it didn't matter anyway yeah. So I got drinking. So we start, I started drinking. By the time I'm 15 or 16, it's like it just it exploded. I mean, my alcoholism was just because even the, even though I had I had grown up some, I physically is when I mean grown, and I'm able to take care of myself now. And I'm building a reputation, and you know, because I not that I was the baddest guy on the block. I was just about the craziest. Because you're going to have to kill me. 
I'm willing to die to defend who I believe Brian has to be. You know, and I'm willing to die for that. And and and, and crazy, unless unless your crazy matches my crazy. You know, if you're up against somebody that's really crazy, you want to get away from them, right? Unless my crazy matches are crazier or better than. I mean, if somebody's crazy or me, I want to get away from them. Yeah. And uh, that's really what mine was, and and I was willing to die for it, and uh, and uh, that's just the way it was. And then so, and at the same time, you know, I'm not good looking enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not. Uh, I'm just not enough. Right. So. And I could look in the mirror and just pick myself apart. And then I'd go get me a go get some beer and I'd drink that beer and all of a sudden I was enough. Yeah. And look that's in what, the mirror. God damn, I, I am good looking. Damn good looking. Suave, you know. You know, yeah. And uh drive better, talk more eloquently. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's what alcohol did for me. It was my solution. It was my solution to my alcoholism to how I coped with life. Right. Get relief from my alcoholism, and then it started. Like I said, it started very early, and once I started, it was on. You know, the book talks about, and I do not like to misquote the big book, so I'm going to talk in general terms about. There was a point where we uh, possibly could have quit, but we had no desire to. I don't know. Maybe when I was 12, 13. I mean, once I started at 15, 16, it was on, and I lived at home. Therefore, I drank. I never forget it. So we started on Friday nights. And we'd drink all the way to Sunday. And then I'd go home. And I, every Sunday night, I'd be hungover and uh, depressed. And I'd want to cry. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know that I was D10. I didn't know that I was withdrawn from that alcohol. And Monday, I'd think, God, I'm not doing that this weekend. Yeah. Tuesday, and, you know, by Wednesday, yeah, hell, it wasn't that bad. And by Friday, you couldn't hardly bridle me to get out the door to school to go back and do it again. The day I turned 18, I moved out for the not, not to be – uh, independent or to uh, strive for success or anything. I had to be left alone so that I could do what I wanted. I didn't have anybody fussing at me. Yep. You know, and th- and that sequence continued. I was an everyday drinker. Uh, I went to I did I went to the military. The only the only times that I didn't drink until I was thirty every day was I was either in jail or in a basic training hmm. or an AIT. I didn't know you were in the military. I was in reserves. Yeah, and uh, I, I went to, um, I bounced around a lot. I didn't know what I was going to do. I got in a lot of trouble before I went in. So I thought, well, that's what's going to make a man. I mean, that's what's going to fix me. I was always yeah. looking for something to fix me. Right. It was the right woman. I got married once that time. Um, I was always looking for something on the outside to fix what was wrong with me on the inside. Bill Ring. You know? And then as my good buddy, or good sponsor, Billy here always tells me, that's my, the essence of my alcoholism. I look for everything on the outside to fix my inside. The only guy I could and I really tried everything I could get my hands on. Absolutely everything I could get my hands on. And um, so I got in a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, I was doing a lot of uh, uh, a lot of pills. I love Xanax. God, I love mm. them. They were just like drinking without the smell. I thought, you know, if they don't smell me, they'll never know. You know, when I got tick tongue and I'm drooling and and uh, peeing on myself, and uh, and I'm 20 years old, I'm turning yellow and jaundice, but nobody knew, you know. And I wasn't hurting anybody either but me. So. That was a real lie, I believe. So I, I, I got into rehab the first time. I'd done been in jail a few times at this point. And I joined the military. And my dad stepped in, and he didn't want me to join. And he said, join the reserves. He said, if you don't like it, you only got to go once a month. He said, if 
you know, if you go active duty, you know, and he, what he was afraid of was is with the way I was running already, I was so off the chain that that I was going to uh, get a disarmable discharge and get in a lot of trouble and wreck, wreck my career forever got started. So I went in, in reserves, and uh, I met a girl in a church, so that's another thing I was looking for. I went to try religion. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Yep. It just didn't work for me. I got five months of solid sobriety in 2005 on religion at all. It's uh, alone. <laughs> they dumped me in the river three or four times and never could wash the, yeah. the alcoholism out of me, you know. And uh, and I met this girl, and I thought, yeah, she had a great ass, and I thought, yeah, that's what's going to fix me. And in the military. So we talked about it, and I went to base training, got back. I had a two-week uh, uh, break from uh, uh, for Christmas between basic and AIT. Got off the plane. I came in, got married, went back to advanced training, met another girl who I married later, came back, got off the plane, said, I made a mistake, and got a divorce. Could be one of the quickest of marriages in history. I don't know, Billy could probably tell me no more. It lasted about three to four months. Time is all said and done. I think I saw her for five days, the total. <laughs> <laughs> and that seemed perfectly normal to me, you know. And uh, I didn't see anything wrong with that, you know. And... Uh, so I got back and I got settled in, and the reserves calmed me down. So they got I got off the drugs because of drug tests, and I just I had enough uh, control and fear over me to keep me off of that. But the drinking really commenced then. It was an everyday, every every evening. I would go in and drink a fifth of liquor at night, get up and smoke a pack of cigarettes. Get the next morning, get over my hangover. I'd go into work, go to duty. Go run four or five miles and then work out and sweat like crazy. Come and drink protein shake, start drinking again. I mean, you know, I was that's how I was managing that's, uh, my, my drinking. And I really thought I had this thing under control. And I got into the family business and I uh, started building a career. I went to work every day. I worked I worked harder than ever. I made sure that I worked harder than everybody else so that you could see that it was, I didn't have a problem. Yep, that's another bell ringer I hear every time somebody sits here is talking about how hard we work so that people don't see us. You don't think we have a problem. Yeah. I, and people come in here and talk about they're in a workaholic, and I was like, no, that's a cover job is what that is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that's a cover job. Yeah, it is. And it, um, so I worked incredibly hard, and then I'll drink incredibly hard. And, uh, I just thought, you know, I was so, I just wrote it off. I'm sowing my oats and, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm young and I grow it. Like I had this thing in my head that is somehow something was going to switch one day. I, they, I was going to hit that whatever it was and everything was going to be okay. Like I was going to be able to manage and I was going to slow down. And, and, used to, and I, so I thought when I married the second girl, I thought that would do it. You know, I'm in the military and then my drinking just, you know, and I, and I had bouts there. I take it back. There was a few bouts I did go on dry spells. And uh, they weren't very long at all. Um, and I'd go right back to it again. And I always start off with like a, a six-pack then in my early 20s. Yeah, that line that says there were periods of sobriety. That's right. And then uh, I'd, when I traveled a lot, and I liked that because like, she henpecked me all the time about my drinking. So i go on the road and stay. During the week, it's construction. You travel a lot anyway, and then I'd really turn it on then. And I was down in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and um, um, my cousin was seeing this girl. And I got the next morning, I was really hungover. She said, "Brian, do you want two lower tabs?" I didn't know what lower tabs were, and I ate two, and my hangover was gone. I felt fabulous till after lunch, and I from that from my time I was whatever twenty I was until the to the end of it, I ate pink goes about every day I get my hands on. 
Uh, and I drank every evening, you know. And uh, I'll call but, an opiates there, sir. A yeah. few of my favorite things. Oh, God, yeah. And I found out later, sobriety, that opiates are the same receptors in our brains that alcohol is. So there's no wonder. It would calm that craving and upset because, well, I'll get into that a little bit later, but it, it calms that craving down during the day and it, it calms that restlessness down a little bit. And that's why I like them so much. Yeah, I did moderate my drinking a little bit with them. <laughs> yeah. I'd I tell myself that. Yeah, if I had enough of them. So that, that was basically my 20s and my and my drinking just progressed. And then when I was getting in my late 20s, um, I, got out of the, I got out of the service. And I wanted to actually do uh, active duty. I really liked it. I didn't like reserves. I really liked active duty. I really enjoyed the Army. I liked everything about it. And I had a lot of opportunity, but I already got a, I'd already had one DUI before I got in and had to get a, uh, what's that called? Conversion? No. Uh, I don't know. Basically, they wavered it to let me in. And I got oh, another. The military gave you a pass. So yeah. They didn't. And then I got another one while I was in. Well, this is in the 1990s, and there was nothing going on. So my sergeant just didn't turn it in. He said, just don't tell anybody. Hmm. And uh, that time I was down at Fort Knox, and they have those concrete barrier walls. And I came up the ramp, and I got on 37, uh, 31W, and I was mad. I was wild, and I was going to get some booze or something. And, and there was a guy in front of me, and I went, and I had a three, uh, Ford uh, 351. And I come around, and I kicked that big block around, and I went around, and I hit that barrier wall. And I rode it for a minute, and I come to, and I was on, and I had a couch seat in my truck, and I was in the passenger seat down in the and I climbed up to the truck and I put it in gear because I thought I'm going to get another deal. Yeah. And it wouldn't go in the forward. It wouldn't go in reverse. And I was headed on the southbound lane. I kicked the door open and I fell out on the northbound lane. I'd straddled that wall and I put two tires on each side of that wall. And they caught in the, in the, in the cops and the ambulances. <laughs> and I'm right at Fort Knox at Bullion Gate, you know, and I'm um, trying to hide it and everything. And there I'll pull it up and they said, buddy, how'd you get it up there? And I said, son, I don't know, but if I could get it off, I sure would. It took two tow trucks <laughs> to get that truck off that wall. I think it's interesting the way you like, you, I had the same experience where my first DUI was, I was 16 and I, I had on, on collision with somebody and I spun, they had in a big car and I was in a little one and they just took me to town and I spun around and I ended up hitting the telephone pole in a cornfield. I remember the very first thing I did was pop the clutch in and tried to start that car again, man, because I was going to go. And I don't, there was no like conscious thought there. That was not. It that was reaction. Run. So yeah, you're up there on the guardrail. Like, get this thing in gear. I'm gonna get yeah, out of my here. My first one, I had a big snowstorm. I came up part of UPS. I worked there for a while before I got fired. Before I went in the military, and uh, I got fired for stealing pills. I told everybody for the longest time I got fired for beating the manager up because I couldn't tell them the truth. Right. You know. And uh, they had a big snowstorm. They dropped me off. Well, I had the munchies. I want to go to Hardy's, so I go down to Hardy's, and there's a big snowstorm, and my car slides off. So here I am, I got one foot on the gas, one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on the door, one hand on the road, and I'm trying to push it and drive it at the same time. The cop pulls up behind me and asks me if I need help. <laughs> that didn't last long. And that, you know, that was only one. I had a five total DUIs. Did you? Uh, I totaled, totaled nine vehicles. That was mm -hmm. just one or two of the ones I did. So, mid, like I said, back where it was, mid-20s, um, you know, the disease, the progression, um, I'm getting crazy and crazy. I'm going to have to drink more and more at night to get relief. Because that's what alcohol did, and that's what dope did, and that's what it's relief from right. alcoholism. And then I would get up more and more and try to manipulate and manage and control the day to work out in my favor in the way I believe it should. And there's a little something about that before the third step talks about right, that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then I'd have to have more relief. 
and is is it and I and I kept trying numerous different things and I tried uh, uh, internet. I, I actually went back to school and got my college degree during this time. I did build a career. I got pretty decent at what I do, and and different fields. So then the industry, you know, there's everything from finding the job, bidding the job, running the job, to the whole nine yards. And I got to learning all that pretty well and uh, travel a lot of different places. I got to see a lot of different things, meet a lot of different people. And I mean, there's some good times there. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't bad. Like right. the beginning yep. was, I loved it. I loved it. I loved to drink. I lived for it. There's a lot of fun back there. Oh, yeah. When I was young, you know, my body, the way it processes it, I could get up and go. By 10 yeah. o'clock, 10.30, it was gone, and I was good to go all day. And then it started laying on me all day, then I found a pain pill, so forth, so on. So by the time I'm about 28, 29, I'm living with a guy. Um, I'm scared to death of being alone, so I won't divorce my ex-wife now. This is before my children. I'm scared to death to be alone. So, and I don't know that. I know that now. You know, right. I didn't know yep. that at the time. So I moved out. I moved, and I'd stay all week. Once again, I didn't want to hear him because so I said, a buddy of mine in high school in Lexington, he had a house, and his wife had left him for another <laughs> man because he's drinking. And um, so it was a perfect fit. And uh, I started coming in, and I had a bar I went to every day. And I pulled my truck right up in the front. I had this big brand-new Dodge Diesel, and I pulled it right up the front because I was afraid everybody wouldn't see me if I didn't, you know. And i get out, and I'd go in, and uh, – something started switching like used to you know i could drink i could drink like you know alcohol ethyl alcohol is a sedative right so it's a tranquil basically like a tranquilizer it should calm you down and actually help you calm down and go to sleep well when i drink ethyl alcohol the opposite direction for me it's an upper like i get six in me i'm ready to boogie i want to go paint the town i want to go raise hell it's completely opposite effect in my body than it is in the non-alcoholics But what happened was, is I would go into the bar, because every, every night, I can remember, I'd go in the bar and think, I'm just going to have a couple. And I sincerely mean it. I'm just going to have a couple tonight. Yep. I'm not closing the bar down tonight. Not tonight. And I would sincerely mean that. And then i get a couple in me, then, you know, that that reverse effect would happen for me, and i get ready to boogie. And um, something happened around 29-ish that uh, I would come in and, of course, this is where my drinking went. I, I was instead of coming in and having a beer, I was coming in and having a screwdriver with shots of Jaeger to get started for the evening. And I knew the bartender well, so it was mostly vodka and a little bit of orange juice in my screwdriver. And my and I would somewhere early in the evening, I would go from okay to just literally couldn't hold my head up. Yeah, like, I just want to pass out. And what was happening was I was poisoning my body. I was poisoning my body to the to the fact my body was trying to save itself. And it was trying to shut down so that I couldn't drink anymore. Well, it never occurred to me to quit drinking. My solution was cocaine. That get me up and I could go all evening, you know, and then get up the next morning and go again. And and I did that through 29, and I finally crashed and burned at 30. And I had my first round of acute pancreatitis. And I ended up in the hospital. Uh, so it goes from gastritis to pancreatitis to acute. And I drank right through gastritis and pancreatitis. I'd lay in the fetal position and, and, and take a drink and lay there until it would and try to hold it down. And I had no idea what that was. When the doctor said you got pancreatitis, is that one of the one you can take out? Because you can just take it out yeah. and let me get back to my business. Yeah. I got to work. Can you remove that? I had a big job going and all this and that. And would that be a pancreatectomy? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, you got to have that one. So that was my first <laughs> round. 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a part in the line in Bill's story. He talks about Lois and, and Dr. Uh, Silkworth are outside the room, and he hears him talking about he's going to have wet brain. or yep. And uh, he said he knew it, he even welcomed it. That doctor and my ex-wife had the same conversation mm. about me. And I, and I remember thinking, you don't know who I am. See, I wasn't where Bill, that's right before Bill talks about the more bitter morass self-pity. Right. Yeah. I wasn't there yet. I still thought I, could, I had this thing and I could manage this thing. And I just had to get back up and do a big job and do this and do that and get things in the right alignment and everything will be okay. Get all the pieces and people in the right spots. Yeah. Right where I need them, everything will be okay. So over the next, from about from thirty to thirty six, I went in the hospital six uh, total six times with acute pancreatitis. Total nine vehicles, five DUIs, uh, numerous trips to the hospitals for detox. Uh, probably forgetting a few things there. Uh, it, you know, I, I got to skip through this phase just because I don't remember much from about nineteen or eight from the time I moved out of hot from from mom's house until I'm about thirty eight or thirty nine. It's like looking back through a veil. Yeah. Things just aren't real clear. And I, what I'm finding is the more time I get clean, that veil is a little less it, it foggy, less you know, and I'll yeah. see some things I couldn't see before. But I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah to, I mean, to, 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 like, start trying to give you details about that period, is I'd be just making shit up. I had a friend the other day who asked me a question about it. So she when was that? And I had to count backwards. <laughs> and, you know, I can't just take that the question. Year. I'm like, when well, I got to chronicalize this event and this event and come in between to figure out somewhere between 04 and 2010. You know, <laughs> that's when that happened. <laughs> I don't remember. I was in a big blackout. And that's where I wanted to be. It got to the point. That's, you know, it wasn't like that beginning, although it got to the point that I just want to be completely blacked out. I, I did not want to think. I did not want to feel. You know, I... I I'd, I'd done everything that I swore I'd never do, just about. I mean, you know, all those levels, well, I'll never go to work drunk, or I'll never do this, I'll never do that. I had crossed all those lines long before, man. I had caused so much hurt and harm. If I ever get that bad. If I ever get that bad, I'll quit. Well, I get that bad, then I'll just make me a new low, you know. Yeah. And I crossed that one, and I crossed this one, and I, did, and I lied to so many people and did so many things and stole that I just didn't want to feel anymore. Because when I woke up, and I was without a drink or something in me. I mean, it just came rushing in, and it was absolute torment. The, the book calls it alcoholic torture. Yeah, the one word in uh, uh, Four Horsemen. You know, and I just I couldn't I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with it. One time, I mean, for an example, this kind of stuff I did. So I'm sitting there, and then we had moved into a new house in Lawrenceburg, and we hadn't been there very long. And I had an old cook, or refrigerator out in the garage. And I and at this point now I went from an everyday drinker to in my when my early thirties when I started pancreatitis I became a binge drinker because I really started that's when I actually began to try to control my drinking and I started realizing eventually and finally that I had no control at all and I had in my entire life so I when I start drinking I might go days without and as when I start drinking I was about to stay drunk for days and I had a bad thing walking around naked. Because we didn't have any kids then, you know. And I'd walk around naked all the time. Well, I had my beer cooler out in the, out in the garage. And I, and, I went, and I would drink till I passed out. It was always the same. I drank till I passed out, wake up, and start drinking again. Well, as soon as I woke up this time, of course, I'm naked. And I, I got to go out to get a beer. And all I heard when I opened that door, I never thought nothing of it. I heard, Brian, don't do it. 
And as I opened the door, the garage is open, and I had to have that drink. And I went, and I never th- even, you know, I didn't turn, and I'm half asleep. I'm coming up, I'm about half drunk still anyway. And I said, go back in the house, get his clothes on. I just went ahead and walked out there and got me a drink and walked back in the house. Well, it just happened to be Saturday afternoon, and every single body that was mowing the yard at the very same time was out there. So when I wake up Sunday morning, you know, you're talking about the, uh, the four horsemen on me. I mean, I was embarrassed beyond recognition. Yeah. You know, and I had all that, and I had stuff like that piled up all through. I mean, everywhere I went, people began to push away. Way all my friends pushed me away. People didn't want me around anymore, or they said we don't want you here drinking. Well, I couldn't do anything without drinking. Anymore. Yeah. If I can't drink here, I'm not coming. Right. And I, and, and although that's just one event, I mean, and I mean, I just had all these things in my head. So when I didn't have something in me, I had accrued so much wreckage in my past. On top of already alcoholism and my restless cerebral discontent that I could not stand not to have something. Bless you. And I wanted to be numb. I wanted to completely and totally numb to the point. I thought about suicide numerous times. Um, I didn't want to. It was just you know when you lose hope. When you really lose hope is when those starts coming in. Yeah. When we begin to lose hope. I just didn't know any other way out. I just looked like, you know, trying to look for an escape route, and that was one that was there. I didn't want that one. No. But, but it, was was like, a, it was one that was a possibility because right. I didn't know how to get this thing stopped. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was about uh, that last round of pancreatitis, I uh, I was in the hospital at uh, – over at Frankfort, Kentucky, and then I was laying there, and I was thinking about what of all the things I've tried, and all the things I've tried, and all the things I've done, and, and I'm going through it because I'm trying to figure this out. Like, I, this is how I'm gonna fix it this time. And I, I was just, and, and then the thought occurs to me, you haven't tried AA yet. Hmm. I don't remember anybody. I, maybe I'd guess when I've been in numerous rehabs, I'm sure I heard about. It. I had a big book in my room. I don't know where it came from. Really, I cannot remember where I got that. At. <laughs> I know it wasn't at a meeting. Yeah, I think it was at a rehab. Okay. <laughs> And <clears throat> so I called up and I got the schedule. I told him I was in the hospital for acute pancreatitis. And he said, Well, that happened. It's like no big deal, you know. Well, yeah. So um, I, I was, uh, I was, in, I got on a bender. I, I went to some meetings and uh, I began to go to AA. And there's a line in the book in the forward and it talks about of uh, those who really tried, you know. Majority got sober once, two after a few attempts, and the rest got better. Yeah. And I, I really, I, you know, like I said, I didn't try because I didn't work except I gave it the best I had. I'd sit in, a, I'd sit in, a, I had gotten so far down that I was completely incapable of being honest with myself. It was not possible for me to be honest with myself. So, therefore, I was giving it all I had. Because, you know, and, and, and over the three and a half year stint or four year stint that I was in AA before I actually got into work, I did get better. Things did get better. During that period of time, my uncle, I never had no brothers and sisters, so my uncle, um, he, he was just a few years older than me, maybe seven or eight years older than me, and he he was alcoholic, and I watched him kill himself over a period of time. I watched uh, the bitter Drink end. himself to death? And he drank himself to death. And let me tell you what, that bitter end is not fast. It is very slow and painful. Uh, I can remember... Um, the house I live in now in Louisville, he used to live there at one time. It's been in the family for a while. Hmm. I still see him time to time sitting there. And he would drink at night with the shades pulled down because he was afraid anybody would see him. But as long as he had that beer in his hand, he was okay. You know, and I would take him beer. And we'd sit and hang out. And we were really close. He's the one person I ever confided in before my sponsor, huh. to some degree. Yeah. 
We were really, really close. And I watched him kill himself the last year or two. I took him to the hospital, and his liver was cirrhosis and everything. He had so much fluid. They run a needle, and I don't know how long is that. Six inches, no, eight inches. Yeah. I'd like to tell her that's six inches, but yeah. that's about a foot. Yeah. Well, that's how long a needle they'd run in his side, and they would drain six to uh, t- 12 to 13 liters off him. And just as soon as he would come out, I would have to drink, run him by the liquor store. And I would pull into the A meeting, and he would sit in the truck and drink, and I'd go to the A meeting. <laughs> he had no desire. And it got to the point he was doing that twice a week. And mm-hmm. I took him up here to what's Suburban's Men now, at that time it was Morton's. Mm-hmm. And I sat with him until he took his last breath two weeks later and during that time no I'm about to bust yeah and so during that time you know Billy and I have talked about this the book says have measures of eldest nothing I don't know I can say I agree with that during that time I'd got a sponsor and I'd started the process and um, there's a difference between writing the inventory and writing a thorough moral inventory because I just wrote inventory that time I wrote down what I wanted to put down and uh, I wasn't even taking through property. They only took me through resentments. And that's what I made my amends list off of, which is not the way the book lays it out. And uh, But it got me something. And I made some amends. And, and I remember as he was in ICU, and what fam- few family was left was standing around the room, and his kids and his grandkids. I looked around that room, and that phallus, that live, the only person I'm hurting is myself, mm-hmm. was crushed. Yeah. Because I looked around that room, and I, I knew for the first time that I affected everybody I came in contact with. So it's little by little, you see, I was already in the process when I was in the room with Cox Anonymous, yet I wasn't really in the work yet. Yeah, that's a very new angle to me on the half measures thing, because uh, I would have disagreed until just now. But I, I totally see that, what you say. I, I, I get that, because I, I did the same thing now that I look at it. I go, yeah, man, I, I was doing this thing half-assed for a while, and it did get me where I'm at today. <laughs> it got me a lot of pain. See, I'm, on, I'm only willing to grow when I'm in enough pain. I will not. I am not willing to change sober or drinking unless I get enough pain. Yeah. If everything's going good, I'm not going to be willing to change a thing. Well, you have to start somewhere, right? And like to come in here and go full blast the first time is a damned uncommon thing. <laughs> right. I mean, the uh, last time that I came back and I can remember, I, sat, I had a walk-in closet in her house, and I sat there and watched YouTube and stuff and some other things. I snorted bath salts because it was cheaper than Coke and drank half a gallon of vodka for about a month, and I'd only come out and go get more dope and booze, and I'd go back in that. I mean, I'd got You lived in the closet. It was a walk-in closet. So I had a little room in there, and it was Listen right to you, the Justify and rationalize. Yeah. It's a walking closet. And I was, building my, I was working on my YouTube page and build my movie-making skills. Oh, I see. He said, that's how I justified it. And there in the end, I got that 12-gauge out, and I stuck that thing in my mouth. And my kids have been born at this point. And uh, I have twins, a boy and a girl. They're eight, they'll be nine, December 7th. And they're just a joy. <clears throat> at that time, they were still in diapers. And I got that shotgun out. And, and, you know, it's funny how you ever go to rooms, and even before you got sober, certain things click, mm-hmm. certain things stick. Mm-hmm. And just recently before that, for some time or another, I heard about kids, adult children who had their parents had committed suicide, especially their father, and how it affected them even then. And I thought about that. And then I heard my kids crying. And, and uh, there's a guy, a guy named Burns B. up here who I uh, heard give a pitch down in Frankfurt years later, and he said, God gave me a gift that day. And I never looked at it that way until I met Burns uh, years later. But God gave me a gift that day, and it was for the first time in my life I thought about somebody besides myself. The first time ever that I can ever think of. Hmm. I thought about those children and how they were going to be affected, and the thought came to me go back to AA. 
And then I was in and out of the rooms there for a while, and, and uh, I, I got in, and then, of course, I started taking pain pills, not telling nobody, and I told people I was sober, and, God, that was awful. And I, so my solution was the last six months, I'm just going to bow out and disappear. And that's when the, the really regular thoughts of suicide were coming in. And I was doing those boxing different things, trying not to drink. Cause every, at this point, every time I drank, it got so bad that I was trying to find other things to keep me from And I know, I mean, I was incapable of not drinking on my own. You know, I was trying to find other things to do it. And that morning I prayed and I said, uh, I said, God help me. I said, I can't do this no more. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. And I knew enough about AA and I've been around the rooms and I've done the things enough. And I sit at the big book studies and everything else. And I, said, I knew what I had to do. And, and, uh, I said, I'll go to the first meeting you want me to go to, and the first person I know that's doing the work, I'll ask them to take me through the book. And I'll do whatever they say, because I had all these things I was never going to tell anybody. And that was my big fear. I wasn't afraid of making the eight to nine step. I was terrified of doing that four step or mm. the fifth step. I had things I swore I'd never tell anybody. Yeah. And I thought, wait, and then my solution was, if that don't work, then I am going to kill myself. If it doesn't work, then it won't matter anymore. And a thought came to me, it was a Sunday morning, early up morning, and there was a meeting that I never went to, but I'd been there. I knew of it, and I'd been there maybe once or twice. And I went down there, and about 10, and, and I mean, there were some good people there. They just weren't really, you know, there's a lot of mixed groups in AA, and nobody was really doing the deal the way I knew about really being in that book. And it was very clear to me. I mean, it was very clear this is what I had to do because I'd run out of options. And about 10 minutes later, uh, my first sponsor, Brad, he walks in the room from Frank, Kentucky, and uh, he come over and sat right down beside of me. And at the end of the meeting was over, it was a speaker meeting. I got, I don't know who spoke. I got him stood, and I sort of babbling. I couldn't even talk. I, I was just broken. I was completely broken. And my life had been so much worse so many times before, and now these hospitals and jails and all the things that I've done. I've been throwing out two car windows. I mean, I've been all kinds of, kind of stuff. And I've been so many worse you know, financially it wasn't the worst, emotionally it wasn't the worst, physically it wasn't the worst, but yet I was broken. I just couldn't do it anymore. I just could not take it anymore. And uh, he, he put his arm on me and said, don't worry, kid, I'll take you to the book. You give me a big book and give me directions. And we started meeting his house every Sunday morning. And that's when this process really... But like I say, those three and a half, four years that I was in the rooms, I see guys coming in out now and they get coins and they go out and I'm like, oh, there goes me, there goes me. Because yeah. it took me a minute. Yep. I didn't walk in the room and just say, boom, I'm ready. Nope. Very Although I did, have pro I did have progress through that period of time because I was so incredibly sick. There was a joke around there. was a Bigfoot site in Lawrenceburg, and i get drunk for like, say, no, 17 days. Wouldn't cut my hair, wouldn't brush my teeth, wouldn't shower. Max wife said, hell, that was just Brian. He's on drunk. We ain't seen him for two days, you know, and they called me Bigfoot for a while. It was just... You know, I went from that and coming out of a walk-in closet thinking I was actually being successful to where I was by the point I was ready to do the work. Yeah. There was progress there. That's what I mean about the looking at half measures thing. You know, as we come in and we're not willing to do the whole deal yet, there actually still is some value. It did lead me to the point that I'm here today. But I don't know I, if it was half it. measures or if that's all I can well, do. Yeah, right. Just, But I, I think I understand what you're saying. I, you know, the book talks about it didn't. That comprehensible demoralization, I can't tell the truth from the false. It took a while to, yep. for that to even come around enough to see the truth that I was actually an alcoholic. Yeah. There's been, somebody said a couple of times, it's hit me all the time, I get in these little windows and something will touch me, like you just said, something will click real hard, you know. And in the last few days, there's been a couple of times where this that, that, that phrase we've heard, that meet somebody where they're at, 
meet you where the you know sometimes we just got to meet them where they're at uh you know i want them to be someplace else but best my best service today to some people is meet them where they're at and you know i'm glad a lot of people were able to do that with me early on because the one thing i never did feel as much as my ego wanted to feel it right and wanted to put it there uh, i never felt ostracized from aa i never felt that i was not welcome back i never I know I didn't either. All the crazy stuff I did and coming there drunk doing stuff in the bathroom. Coming back, getting my white chips yeah. and doing my bullshit again where I'm back and giving my little pity party. We're glad you're here. Yeah. Keep coming back. And they hug me. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Offer me help. Want to go eat afterwards? Want to go? Okay. All right. So when I got with Brad, you know, we began this process on beginning step work. So step one, we made it. We were powerless over alcohol. That's the first part of the step. It's a three-part disease, alcoholism. I got this thing called a phenomenon of craving. When I drink, I get thirsty. And the more I drink, the thirstier I get. And I can't get enough. Like I said, I've been so drunk I couldn't crawl. I've laid in hospital beds and rooms, and they're telling me I'm dying of acute pancreatitis. I got me handcuffed to the bed, and all I can think about is drink. And uh, that's a phenomenon of craving. That's after I take that drink, and that lasts 72 hours for me. I know that almost to the minute because I've detoxed myself so many times. So in other words, if I get drunk last night and I'm thirsty today, I'm still thirsty. See, I've still got this thing called a phenomenon of craving. Then there's a second part of the disease called the mental obsession, the mental phenomenon, as the book calls it. And that's this aspect that's just really, you know, the word phenomenon means you don't know what, we don't really, can't understand it. And the science can break down why our bodies break down alcohol differently for the, for the physical aspect, but the mental it's still, it's still misunderstood or not understood. So I would literally walk the floor for three nights and three days, shaking and sweating to my socks were shaking. Every time I would lay down, my chest, was, my heart was beating out of my chest, and I thought I was going to stroke out. And my eyes would burn. I could not sleep. And then, and my, and, and I'd come off of that. And my throat would be so raw, and stomach, gut would be so tore up. And four or five days later, I'd think, you know, it wasn't that bad. Just half pint. Yeah. Just half pint. And it always started that way, or there was no thought at all. You know, this look. This time is how I'm going to do it differently. You know, I'm just going to get a half pint. And I tried all the ways the book talks about. Plus, it says adding phenobum, not having it in the house, and different things. And and uh, I think two or three of my DUIs were on those half pint runs because I'd go to the top of the hill where the liquor store was, and uh, I go get a half pint, and I go back and get another half pint. And I go and hell, I would never buy. Why don't I just buy a half gallon? You know. But I was trying to manage and control my drinking. I didn't realize that I was powerless over this thing. So that's two parts, the, the physical and the mental. And then, then there's a hyphen. It said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, hyphen, that our lives had become unmanageable. If it said, and our lives had become unmanageable, that would be a same, the same thought, which would mean my life is unmanageable because of my, because of my drinking. See, the hyphen designates a separate thought, which means my life is unmanageable when what the book calls a spiritual malady, regardless of. But because, with the, so I heard it said, everyone has a spiritual malady. Every single human being has it. Us as alcoholics seem to have it a little bit more extenuated, and then you add in the, the physical and the mental aspect of it. Yeah. And that's what really sets us apart with this disease, you know. And it's a three-part disease, physical, mental, spiritual. And that mental aspect, that mental obsession, and, 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 and coupled with that spiritual malady of all that noise in my head is constantly noise. 
I was sitting in a quiet room and screamed out stop because I wanted my mind to stop and I could not I did not have the tools at the time and I did not have the solution at the time to be able to get it to quiet and the only way to get it quiet was to drink and to oblivion and what I'm looking for is relief from that that's my alcoholism in essence and alcohol is my solution to that so when I sat with Brad and he told me he said you know I had to have something as good as alcohol as a solution or I'm not going to quit. Even though how bad it got, I, I still knew the really sick thing was as bad as it got, I still knew what to expect from alcohol. I still knew I could get that relief and I had to have relief. I could not, I could not stand it for very many days at all without it. And he said that this program would, was equivalent to, in his experience, better than the alcohol and that's been my experience as well. Mine as well. So, and um, <clears throat> it took me a while. It, it talks about in the book, uh, it says we had to concede to our innermost being that we're alcoholics, and this is the first step in recovery. That's not in the first step, but the concede is to admit to my innermost self against something that I, that I originally disagreed with. And I, I was hell-bent on not being an alcoholic. I'd have been a drug addict, schizophrenic, bipolar, anything you wanted me to be, <laughs> sex maniac, anything but not an alcoholic. I'm not, because my picture of perception of an alcoholic was weak will, and I was not weak willed. It was impossible. It is not a willpower at all thing. Right. Alcoholics are some of the most uh, strong willpower people I know. Who in hell gets up after drinking like that and gets up and pushes himself as hard as I did and some of the guys I know to work the next day and do the things they do to show that they're not? That's a lot of willpower. Yep. Yep. You know. It's an interesting thing when you get somebody that's not one of us that wants to do that little argument about willpower. Uh, you, you just set your mind to it, Brian. I, like, I set my mind on everything else to it, and I, I just could not. Yeah. I really, really gave it everything I had. And I hear stuff in Indian. So my uh, first sponsor, Brad, told me a story. He said there's a newcomer and an old guy, old-timer that goes in a meeting. And they come out of the meeting, and the, new, the old-timer asked the newcomer, he said, what did you think about that? And he said, oh, I wasn't too bad. What, you know, the newcomer asked the old-timer, he said, what did you think? He said, well, there's a lot of BB. And the newcomer says, what's BB? He said, I don't know, but it's not AA. <laughs> okay. You hear a lot of stuff in meetings, it's not AA. And that's just the reality of it. And uh, uh, to hear it for the first time with Brad was uh, pretty amazing. When he took me through this book, it's like it took a whole new light. I sit in big books, and I heard it read and everything, but when he read me word for word, line for line, this book became alive. And the only thing I had experience with in the beginning was the first step, because I was in active alcoholism, right? But over time, the whole book has took shape, and I've got experience all through this book now, Yep, through my sobriety. Like somebody said, it's wet ink. You know, every time I read it, I see something that didn't seem to be there before. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, like, you know, I got three guys in the book right now, plus a big book study going in, and I'll sit with one of them and hear it one way, or I hear their experience, and I'm thinking, well, there's just a little, that little change of reception. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. That happens right here across this table every time I talk to somebody, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll hear something that tells, hmm, that's, and I'm open today. I don't have to be closed off to that new stuff. You right. know, there was a time when uh, if it didn't fit my narrative, it didn't, it, it wasn't coming in. Right. You know, the book says open-minded, willing, and honest. And I was just open-minded. I had been beat down and broken enough through pain and, and discomfort to be open-minded. I was like 51% on the fence to get sober and 49 still wanted to drink. And that 1% was all I had. 
You know, I mean, I don't want anybody new to think, you know, I got to be a full force of this. I wasn't full force of this thing. I was just out of options. If it was still working for me, I'd have still been drinking. But I had just that 1%. Because I was constantly teeter-tottering back and forth between what I would continue to do this thing or not, but it was really clear to me I needed to do it. So, uh, and then, it, like I said, the unmanageability of the spiritual man, I get in that more in the fourth or fifth step. So, step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I really had a hard time with this step. I was so agnostic, so uh, I believe there was something bigger than me in this world, especially after doing a vitro with the kids. So the doctors can enhance the process of, of, of getting pregnant, although they can't make it happen. But when you're doing vitro, you get to actually see the process. You know, and Both you, my kids are IVF babies. Yeah, and it, it was amazing. And I, and I remember I watched this thing, and I was still drinking then, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I remember it was like a light bulb come on. I could not argue the fact that there was a God. Hmm. It was interesting. I Googled this morning to see how I many. I was Googling stuff in the big book, and it said God's used 134 times in the first 164 pages. I said hmm. every 1.2 pages it's on. So, but I really struggled with this, and it comes to a point in the book, in the, in the second step, and it, and it says, you know, uh, we had to have our own conception, and Brad stops me, and he asked me, he says, do you have your conception? And before he'd done that, when he had me do the work, there's a lot of capitalized words, like God's capitalized, right, G-O-D, and then higher power, and uh, uh, there's a bunch of them. And we agnostics, there's a ton of high right. capitalized 15, words. maybe. 17. 17 is that what it 17 is? words and I had to write every one of those in my own definition of while I was reading through that chapter hmm. and my conception was really simple because I was raised in the Hellfire Brimstone Church and I don't know what they said I don't know what I heard this is where I comes with what I was like yeah, See, right. I don't know what it was like I don't know what other people were doing I know what I was like like we talked about at the beginning Yeah. I know what I heard and I heard that I'm screwed no matter what I do I'm going to hell so therefore I'm going to have a good time going uh, I learned later on that I've already I, the absence of God is hell for me so mm -hmm. I walked in that hell locked off from the sunlight spirit by my own resentment my own remorse my own fear for all those years so when I got when I got this conception it was real simple it was just I wanted a God who loved me unconditionally and I didn't understand what unconditional meant and then I also added in there because I wrote it on a piece of paper and I said when I mess up he loves me when I mess up too mm -hmm. I didn't understand what unconditionally even meant yeah I never experienced it at least in myself I never experienced it therefore I couldn't define it you know uh, step three made a decision turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him whereas I've been taught to put that in first person as I understand him so Brad told me it was Clint Hodge's story that he told me it's okay so um Another yeah. one of those things is when a guy says his name, because a lot of people say their first and last name out there on the net. Well, he does. And right. uh, when and if they're doing it, I don't feel so, you know, I, I'm off the hook too. Right. No big deal, brother. Okay. Yeah, I think he is dead too. Was oh, is he say. dead? Oh, that way I can use his full name. So anyway, Clint Hodges. So Brad told me this story in reverence of how to get to this third step because he told me, he said, your life will no longer be your own. Well, that scared the hell out of me because I, you know, I mean, I, I'm still, <laughs> I was still uh, thinking that uh, I had this thing kind of licked, that I could figure this thing out. So he tells me a story of Clint, and, uh, you know, he's, what, 15 years sober, and he's got a wife and a girlfriend, and he does on his third step, and he loses everything, and I'm sure that that was going to be happening to me. Well, I already lost everything and ain't got anything back yet, but I was convinced that was going to happen to me. And, 
It says we thought long and hard for taking this step, so I thought all week because I had a week. And I didn't know um, whether I was going to do it or not. I just know I took the action. I got in the car and I drove out there that Sunday. And when he said, Are you ready? I got down on my knees with him and we did that third step. Hmm. And I had to help him up because he had a bad hip. And I really thought that the, the skies would part and, and things would come down and nothing happened. I felt, let me, let me rephrase that. I won't say nothing else. I felt, I didn't feel any different. Really? Zero. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't feel a bit different. And I got up and I got, maybe I got a little more ear, more restless than I already was. I don't really remember. And what I know is uh, he started teaching me how to write inventory. And that next day, I began writing a thorough and more inventory for the first time in my life. You see, like I said before, I was incapable of being honest with myself completely. And I, this is not without, as my grandsponsor says, divine intervention. I like to call it a third party. So when I sit down with a guy and take him through the book, or my sponsor sit down with me and takes me through the book, there's a third party that intervenes here. Call it whatever you want. Good point. I like that. And it something begins to take over when it's done honestly, right? And left my own devices, I know what writing inventory looked like. It was it, I can write inventory without it being thorough and moral. Thorough and moral just means honest. And I began to write a thorough and moral inventory. And I wrote down things I swore I'd never do. And I mean, I wrote. And for the first week, I wrote for three solid hours a day. And it was driving me crazy. But it was the first time in my life that I, so I drank for relief, drove for relief. And for the first time in my life, I started feeling relief. And that relief wasn't taken away the next morning when I woke up, you know, hungover and, and remorseful and all the things that I had. It was stuck. And so I was driving myself crazy because I want more, right? Well, one's good, five's got to be better. So I, I just kept writing, writing, writing. And some guy told me to break it down to an hour a day, so I broke it down to an hour twice a day the second week because I don't take directions very well. Yeah. You know, because I got that thing called the peculiar mental twist, and I'm exception to the rule again. And... Uh, and I wrote for two solid weeks, and I went in there, and uh, I sat down with him, and we read through the fifth step in the big book, and then he asked me what I left out, and I told him, and I did leave one thing out, the one thing I swore I would never tell, and I left that out, and I told him that, and he, and he took me so lovingly and kindly and, he, and, 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 and patiently through this process. Mm. He was very gentle, and it was very... Uh, so he lived way out in the country. He didn't have a TV. He had a wood burning stove. It was wintertime. 30 days after I was sober, I wrote him. I was doing my fifth step. Um, I packed my lunch because I knew. I mean, I wrote pages and pages and pages of resentments, pages and pages and pages of fear, pages and pages of relationships. And I knew I was going to be there a while, so I packed my lunch. And he liked these candy bars from Kroger's, and they were like these uh, uh, organic chocolate so I got him too, and every time I was, because I was afraid he'd kick me out or he wouldn't like me, you know, because I'm not enough. So therefore, I would hand him a candy bar ever so often, <laughs> so try to coax him into hearing me out, because I didn't want to die, and uh, I really didn't want to die. I never did. I, I realize now that it was I was just out of uh, out of solutions. I, ne I, I never actually wanted to take. It. I had two friends at 17. I was two two and a half years sober. And they took their lives, you know, out of hope. And I never actually wanted that. I was just, that was just an option, as you said, you know. So I began, and I began to tell him all these things that I swore I'd never say. And at the end of it all, um, he got up, he stood up, he looked at me, said, kid, if I can love you after all that, God can too. Hmm. And he gave me a hug. 
and I left and I went home and I did six and seven right out of the book. Now, six and seven are probably two of the most untalked about, most powerful steps in all the steps. It's almost as if we're supposed to read, take the book off the shelf, sit for an hour quietly, ask God, and then do the prayer, which is not the same as the seventh step. The seventh step says, or six step, six step says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We're entirely ready to have God remove all. I'm not entirely ready to ready for God to remove them all today. There's a few of them I'm pretty partial to. And then seven, humbly asking to remove our shortcomings. One, the seven step prayer says remove the shortcomings or remove the defects that stand in the way of being service to you and to others. I don't decide which defects are taken and which are left. As Billy tells me, he says, you know, I might be holding on to one. So everyone's a teacher. They teach me what to do and they teach me what not to do, right? right. And my greatest teachers, one of them sitting in this room, Teach me as much what not to do by their own experience as they do as what to do, you know. And a lot of times I, I learn what to do from what not to do, right? At least yeah. I got a starting point. No, not do these things. And I like uh, another. Somebody says, uh, "How do I know if I'm in God's will?" Well, you know, a lot of times I don't, but most of the time I know when I'm not. Right. <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure he don't want me drinking. Yeah. Pretty sure on that. I'm pretty My sure. My gut will me. tell me, yeah, buddy, you really shouldn't be doing that. Right. And you know some of the, like I said, some of the defects I might be that I might that I'm not holding on to that might be left for some, teaching other people what not to do. Yeah, right. No doubt. Good point. I I'm like to think that, that I'm teaching people what to do. My ego doesn't want to hear yeah, me that too. I'm teaching what not yeah. to do. Because I've got this whole. But what I find, let me back up into the steps or to the inventory process. Excuse me. So I got a little ahead of myself. You got resentments, four columns, and Billy likes to call it three A or three B. You know, I can tell. I can sit in a bar and tell you who I was resentful at, and why, why, and how that affected me. You know, did it affect my ambition, my my self esteem, my personal relations with or without sex, in my with in my pocketbook. I can tell you that sitting in that bar. And you got this. What Billy calls because you got it says turning back. To, uh, there's a prayer in the inventory process in the in relationship column, and we go back to that between three and column three and column four. And that's where I give it over to the higher power to handle it. See, I don't remove my, if I could remove my resentments, if I could fix my character defects, and these things I was talking about with the BB, um, you know, I hear things like, don't drink, come back tomorrow. If I, if I could just not drink, I wouldn't need to come back tomorrow. Yeah. I was unable, to, I drank against my will, not with it, you see. So, when I'm in that process, and then when I give it over to the higher power between three and four, and that prayer Billy calls three B, then I go to four and I write down my character defects. And I hear all kinds of other BB in the rooms. Well, I got a character defects of shopping, and they said that's not a character defect. That's a symptom of. There's only four: self, self, uh, self, self-seeking, dishonest, and afraid. And out of those, and with mine, there's always afraid in there. And those were the symptoms of all these, all my actions and reactions come from. So I get down, then I go to the fear column. And it says, we listed our fears. I wrote down on my first one, I had 97 fears. And the book says we're driven by 100 forms of fear. I call Brad scared death, I was going to get drunk. I thought I said, I think I left out three, and I don't know what they are. He said, if you're straining, you're done. And the way he says, and we list why we have these fears, and what he taught me is why we believe. And then, like I said back in the beginning, so I start believing Brian has to act, think, look, all these a certain way in order to be okay, to be accepted as. I can't just be who I am. See, that's not that's not feasible because I'm not enough. And in that and in that process I found that 
One, I relied on self constantly. I was afraid God wouldn't. I knew I couldn't. You know, even as a child, when I watch my children and, and, and they have fear, they're relying on self. And they don't even know any different. Yep. And I was no different than a child. I was relying on self, and I knew that self couldn't. Self cannot fix self. It cannot. And I knew that, and in my internal core, I knew that. Even though in my, my thought process of what I can conjure in my own little mind, I think so grand, in my internal core, I knew that I, that I self couldn't fix self. It's age-old wisdom, too, man, from the from way back. The whole right. stuff with Confucius and Buddha and all that, the problem can't be solved by using the problem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, there's a reason that that fear column's in the center, because it radiates into all my resentments and it radiates all my relationships. And I learned there that, uh, I learned on my first inventory that uh, I just, I have no uh, relationship with or trust in or hope in a higher power take care of me I relied completely on Brian and I found that I believed God wouldn't and I couldn't and then when I got with Billy he's taught me that the deeper end of that selfish self-centeredness which is the root of my problem the book says this is down to the root this is down to the problem I've got to understand I've got to be able to identify a problem before I can find a solution I cannot seek a solution without knowing what the problem is so now I'm getting into the problem the real problem and what it looks like Billy's taught me, you know, my, my script is, is not much different from his, is that I believe that I'm not enough, and I've said this number of times, I'm not enough. Therefore, mm-hmm. I've got all these facades and masks and all these things. And then I go into my relationship column, and there's nine across the board, you know, and who they were, and the harm, and all these things as the book lays them out. And as I go through that, I see how I have acted and reacted and, and, and why I have lied. I only lie to you because I believe I have to. I only steal from you because I believe I have to. See, I won't lie or steal or any of these other things from you that I go that are not spiritual principles as long as I don't believe I have to. But I believe I have to, I'm going to do it. If uh, we call it, they call it in, in another BB in the rooms, people pleasing. Both Brad and Billy taught me that's just being dishonest. That's all that is. I'm not being honest. I don't have enough. Um, I don't think of this person as a human being enough to be honest with them. You know, and I'm too afraid what you're going to think about me if you see who I really am to tell you the truth about me. Therefore, I lie to you. And I find these are the truth of the facts I find out about myself in the inventory process. You know, the book talks about working with it, and early on talks about metallics, you know, uh, properly armed with the facts about ourselves. Right. Well, that's the facts about myself. And that belief, that that. That, that can be a very, uh, you know, I hear all these things about the terrible fourth step. Let me tell you something. This is, it is a painful process in the sense my beliefs are being crushed, which it feels like my feelings are being hurt. Hmm. That's what we call it. Those are just beliefs being crushed. And at the same time, it's a very freedom step. Yeah. You know, that's when I started stepping into the freedom. Then I go into six and seven. So as I look into this inventory process and I see how my character defects, these four have radiated into every area of my life, how they're shoving me around, making my life unmanageable. I'm going around seeking relief and doing things that I swore I'd never do. Now, this all came about now. I'm back to the problem looking out. I'm looking at it from a different angle. This is when I'm entirely ready to have God remove the defects, character, stand away from his service to him and to others. You know? Because that, that's a very... Not only have I looked at it, I've told another man this, and, 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 and that third party that's in the room as well and I'm like okay it's time for you to take it 
Now, the way it almost reads in the book and the way I've heard it, it's almost as we do this in one-time deal. This, these, these steps, as I get on into 10, we're going to talk about inventory again, that's when 6 and 7 need to be revisited. Every time I do inventory, I need to revisit 6 and 7. Uh, Bill Wilson said this is the steps to separate the men from the boys in the 12 and 12. I mean, these are, these are uh, really... Uh, Don M., my grand sponsor, said the first, and this he said this only the first nine years, he almost killed himself trying to fix himself. Bob White, one of the old timers, said, uh, he said, I wish somebody just said, slow down, cowboy, you can't fix you. See, everybody's a teacher. They're t- by what they learn, not they teach me what not to do is what's teach me what to do. Yep. To go back to six and seven, back to six and seven. <clears throat> so we sat down again, and in the book, it reads, so the men's process doesn't come from the resentment column. It comes from the relationship column. There's a column in there, and I hate to misquote the book, that says, where have we been selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, and whom had we hurt? There's a difference between hurt and harm. I can hurt you just for one time deal. When I harm you, like my mother or my ex-wife, they didn't know who was coming home. They didn't know if happy Brian, mad Brian, drunk Brian, or if I was coming home, or I was going to end up dead in the hospital. Those kind of things are hard. That's where my, that's where that, right there is where that comes from into my men's list. So I sit down and I make this list of the men's of people I've harmed. Now, I was not ready to go in front of all these people. Hell no. I balked, I balked pretty much all the way through this thing. And it still works. So what Brad had me do is I took index cards and I wrote individually on each index card their name and how to get a hold of them, and I put a minus or a plus by. The minus was if I was unwilling, and the plus was if I was willing. And it was it was interesting to see over a period of a year or so that how those minuses became pluses. And I don't remember anything from a day-to-day that was significant, but as I've continued this process, it just took over. And, of course, the men's process was every one of them I thought was going to be horrible were okay. Mm-hmm. I don't do the men's for me. It's not for me. It's for that other person. It's self-enlightened interest because I do get something out of it, although it's not for me. It is for that person I'm harmed. Steps one through nine are to clean up the wreckage of my past. That is what they're for. Clean it up so that I can get rid of all that stuff in my head and all that remorse and guilt and fear and horror that I'm carrying so that I can be set free enough to start a new life. And that's what this is. It's a new life. Mm-hmm. Reborn. You know, the book says I'm reborn. Reborn. So we talk about all these promises, and this is something that's been on my mind lately. So I've even heard it read in the book, the ninth step promises are always read at the beginning of a meeting. I've even heard it read some lately that these are the AA promises. No, yeah. they're not. They're the ninth step. And they're not even all the ninth steps. They're the majority of. The first step is right here in the title page. The story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And this book, from first step on, and the doctor's opinion, is full. I read it. I looked it up just out of it. And they came, they came up with roughly 150 promises from page 164 in this book. One of them is we are reborn. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what happens in this process. I begin to get free. I begin to get reborn. I become a new person. I get a new mind. I get rid of the old and become new. I called Brad one time. I said, Brad, I feel like I'm losing my mind. He said, get, get rid of that damn thing. It ain't doing you no good. Let God give you a new one. I'm thinking, why do I call these guys? <laughs> you know, and uh, he's really something. 
So, 10, continue to take personal inventory and we're wrong, promptly admitted. I learned how to do inventory in four and five. That doesn't mean I do it one time and I stop, but that doesn't mean I have to go back through steps and rewrite inventory. If I'm doing 10 on a daily basis properly, now I mean, I'm speaking, this is how I've done it. I have tried every single way possible to do this process my way. And only when the pain, like I said earlier, I'm only unwilling to change when the pain, when I'm uncomfortable enough and the pain is great enough. Yep. So through the process of trying it my way to the point that I hit, I get to that jumping off place. The book talks about the jumping off place for the alcoholic. Well, I've hit a lot of times with sobriety. I give, I can't live with or without how I'm living anymore, and I've got to give up and say, "All right, big guy, you take the wheel." I'm yep. done. Absolutely. So this is how I know. I'm not saying that I'm doing this thing right when I'm when I'm talking this. I know what it looks like. I know it looks like my life when I have done it to the best of my ability, and I mess this thing up on a daily basis. But I'm giving this thing called grace because all I really got to do is try. Yep. There's also a line in there that echoes what you said. It says, we will tell you what we have done. That's as simple as what this is. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's, but this is what I did. And it says it's not, we're not, we don't have a monopoly on this thing either. Right. This is not, this was the only thing that worked for me. Yeah. But there's, I've met a lot of people spiritually awakened that aren't alcoholics that have found it another way. Yeah. And there's awaken. other ways to get sober. I don't there know is. any of them. <laughs> I know this, but there's bound to be. Yeah, there's other people that have found it. Yeah. They found it. Actually, a buddy of mine died last night. Really? And he died sober. Damn. He had lung cancer. Yeah, down in Frankfurt. I got the text. I'm oh, sorry to hear that, man. But that's the, you know, I, I felt that at first when I was talking to your sponsor at the party when, when I got the text. And I thought, well, hell with it. You know, he died sober. And he said, that's right. He's in a big party in the sky now, man. So that's the goal, right? To live a happy, joyous, free while we're here, to help others, and to die sober. Well, that's the goal. I always like that. Somebody gave me that. It's that you know, we got a real bad connotation of thirteen stepping around. There's a there's a word for you know there's some terms for what we do when we're doing that. But somebody redefined that for me and said thirteen step is when you die sober. I prefer to lean on that thirteen step. Yeah, I'll myself. go with that one versus the other one. Yeah. I've tried them both. That one worked a lot better for yeah. me. <laughs> that's one I prefer to uh, think of when I hear that word. Yeah, or hear that phrase. So there is the most important word in all the steps. It's not powerless. It's not God. It's number one step. First word of step 10 is continue. Continue, 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 continue. You know, I don't graduate. I don't arrive. I get a daily reprieve. That's all I get. And that's what, and that's all contingent on, the, uh, the, on my spiritual condition. And not, not on my spiritual condition, on my maintenance, maintenance. of my spiritual condition. Because my spiritual condition can change all throughout the day. But if I'm doing the maintenance steps... 10, 11 are the maintenance steps. 1 through 9, clean out records of my past. 10, continue to do it. If I'm continuing to do it, I'm going, if I'm doing it, what I've been taught and I finally heard from Bob White and Don Hammond, Billy and other people taught me, when I hit 10 and I do something, I need to go back to 6, 7. I don't just talk to somebody and roll on. Okay, and there's a lot of prayers in the 10th step about this as well. When I go back to 6 and 7 and ask them to move these character effects down away and be a service to me and others. Yeah. 11 uh, one of my favorite steps probably my favorite step because I don't really like 10 I just do it because I, I have to like I said I've tried to way around it uh, the first uh, 8 or 9 months I was sober I stopped at 9 I kept doing the things that I've been doing other than drinking and doping I was still acting like a raging active alcoholic uh, I got in a lot of pain I was accruing I'd I cleaned up the wreckage of my past a certain degree, and yet I was accruing new wreckage so I go to Brad and Brad, what am I doing? What do I do? And he and he he knew what I was doing, but he wanted me to say, he said, what aren't you doing? 
and I wasn't doing 10 and 11. Hmm. I wasn't doing the maintenance steps. I got I got to that nine step, and I started resting on my laurels. Thank God I got enough pain. And uh, so I started doing 10 and 11, and 11 for me was very hard. I hear a lot of people say this, well, I try to meditate. No, if, if I try to pray, I'm praying. If I try to meditate, I meditate. Meditating simple. It's not a specific art. There's a thousand different ways to do it. Yep. I was simply taught to sit and breathe. Just sit and breathe, watch the breath. And as my mind wanders, and I've, and I've become aware that my mind wanders, when I become aware that my mind is wandering, then I'm aware again. And I'm back to the present moment, and I come back to the breath real gently. And I do that over and over. You know, we did a, we did a little 10-minute breathing here before we started this deal. And I like to breathe through that irritable rest of discontent because I have that first five or six minutes, four minutes, it depends where I'm at, to where I feel like I'm done, I need to get up and do something. And, I've got, and I like to breathe through that to the point that I'm okay right where I'm at. And that's where I get that peace of mind. Because that's what we get. That's the goal. That's the gift I get is peace of mind. That's what I wanted the whole entire time that I was drinking drugs is I wanted peace of mind. I wanted relief from my alcoholism, and that's what I was seeking. But I wanted permanent relief. This is the only thing I've ever found that works on a day-to-day basis. Amen. Me too. And the more I do it, the better it gets. Billy told me a year and a half ago when I moved here that I, I was just t- touching the tip of the iceberg. And in that year and a half's time, I can tell you I've, uh, a lot has changed in a lot of good ways for me. And that's just because I'm continuing. Yeah. And I'm doing prayer meditation on a daily basis. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening. That's saying I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Okay, now I've had this awakening, which uh, is the solution to my alcoholism. It says that right in the back of the book in spiritual awakening. I, we try, I try to carry this message to alcoholics. I try to carry it. That means I do my part. I try. Right? And practice these principles in all my, our affairs. Well, you know, the last four or five chapters in the book, after working with others, is, is, is dedicated to nothing but practice principles in our lives. Because I don't spend the majority of my life in a room. It says it's a, it's a what's the word it's used in the big book? It's a, uh, it's like a hobby. Avocation. Avocation working with others, right? Most predominantly, most of my work, most of my time is spent on at work and it's spent with the children, you know. And, um, you know, when I started praying and meditating doing 10, 11, about 19 months sober, guys came to me and asked me to sponsor him. And then another guy came to me and asked me to sponsor him. Yep. And then another guy came to me and asked me to sponsor him. And I started sharing and I became secretary of our home group and then I became uh, uh What's it called? Not GSR, but a... IGR? No. You're standby. What's the word? Alternate? On? Alternate GSR, and I became GSR, and I became... Uh, God's gonna funny since humor. I had uh, resentment towards treatment and police, predominantly at that point, that really stood out. So I, the, only treat, the only chair at the service level was treatment, and I took it to be in it because I went where Brad went because I wanted what he wanted, what he had. And then the police officer moved him inside of us, and I got to know him really well, and he's a pretty good dude. You know, and, they, and that's those kind of things have happened to me over yeah. and over and over and helped me get rid of this this, this deal. So that, that, that took off, and in about two years, we were about to bankrupt the company. A big job come up in, um, up here in Indiana for a road job for me to go do, and I took a group conscious. I wanted out of it. I didn't want to go. And the group conscious voted against me and the family, and I went. And I tell you, I was taken, and I didn't know this until I look back on it now, you know, once again in hindsight. So my higher power, which was nothing wrong with this, was originally actually my sponsor. 
And then it became my home group was my higher power. I was very active in my home group. I was there. We had two meetings a week. I was there every time the door opened. I was the one opening the door. I made sure we had a meeting. I mean, that was my thing for like a year and a half. I was at the district level. I was going to area meetings. I was on the service side. I was doing all three legacies. And we'll get into that in a minute. And and life was really happening. And then this thing, it up and picked me up and rooted me and took me off. Because we were bankrupt. And I was ready to do something else, sell everything. And, and when we were looking at selling everything. My dad and mom were older and they didn't we're going to have much. And the group conscience voted against me. I went to Indiana because I followed group conscience, and even though I don't want to, and I realized through that period of time I was not going to meetings much. I wasn't able to. We was working seven days a week, daylight dark, for a long time. But the one thing I never quit doing, I'd call Brad. He'd say, keep breathing, kid. And I'd call him in inventory, and I'd pray and meditate every day. Every single day. And what I did is I developed a relationship through that period of time because out of desperation, everything I've learned, I've been given the gift of desperation. Right, yeah. And through the gift of desperation, I've been given willingness, open-mindedness, and honesty. Right? That's been my experience. And through that gift of desperation, I was given, I've developed a relationship with this higher power that I honestly don't understand and don't need to because I see miracles. I see three miracles in this room today. There's no reason why all of us shouldn't be dead drinking right now. Yep. Everybody's amazed when somebody goes out and gets drunk. I'm amazed when we don't. I'm amazed when we don't. I'm amazed when my buddy died sober from lung cancer, and he didn't drink over that. And I know how he drank, because drank, he drank like I did. And a lot of things have changed. You know, when I was up there for all that time, um, I came back, told her I wanted a divorce. Uh, we had a family home here in Louisville. We lived in Warrensburg, so I moved up here. Ran over to my grandfather's meet. We went through a new pair of glasses with Chuck Chamberlain. That was a very eye-opening experience for me, a very growing time. That was a uh, helping God's kids for free and for fun, do what they need done. First time I heard that, I was in Indiana, and I heard, I've had it on YouTube, and I'm peeling around the, my apartment. and I heard, I heard what Chuck say was, I help God's kids for free and for fun, and I heard, didn't hear anything, and I heard him say, and I got rich. I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. So I went around helping God's kids for fame and fortune for about four months, and my ass was falling off. And I moved to Louisville, and I called Billy, because when I, when I called Brad, see, Billy used to be my grandfather. And Brad said, if you're moving to Louisville, call Billy. He'll take care of you. <coughs> I always cry when I'm all this. I like it. <coughs> I cry been, every day, been, man. It's been a powerful journey, man. Yeah, man. I was so afraid when I got here. You know, I was terrified. And um, I was terrified I was screwing up my kids. I was terrified I was out of God's will. And, 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 and like, I have all this power. It totally tells me in step two that lack of power is my dilemma. But I think, I'm delusional enough to think that I have this power. And I got here, and I had all these fears. And I've been just, just constantly had the right people come into my life, like Billy, like you. And I met through another one of my brothers is the one that got me into spiritual honor to begin with. They got me over there. And I went through the book with Chuck Chamberlain. And, and Billy told me, he said, oh, yeah, uh, Chuck Chamberlain, help God's kids for free and for fun. Dude. And I said, free and for fun? I had that completely backwards, you know. But that's just how I think. And I need help because I'm sick. And I need help today just as much. The only difference between, between my management ability today and the day I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is I'm a lot more aware of it today. I'm a lot more aware of how much I need help that I can't do this thing alone. And yeah. I know what it looks like. I know what wreckage I can cause sober or dry, if you will. And life's really took off, man. I've had a lot of things come into my life lately. Uh, 
back when I was still drinking, I had this idea of what I would like Brian to look like in the industry that I'm in. And all those things originally have come into my life and happened, and I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I was at the doctor's office and get a call that uh, I'm president of the chapter of the state. I skipped the meeting because I didn't think they'd want me there. They, You know, I was afraid that I wouldn't <laughs> intentionally. And I'm coming out of the chiropractor's office and they're saying, congratulations, you're president of the chapter. No, no, no. These things just keep happening. Yeah. My experience, too. I got guys asking me to take them through the book. we got a big book study going on, and I've been asked to do another big book study with some guys. Uh, I don't know how many we've got interested yet, you know, and then I've been asked to speak. And But I guess the most amazing thing that's happened for me is this summer, I was, you know, this is how I do. So construction industry slows down. Right at the beginning of summer, I'm when school kids go on break. And we really come to a stop, which we've been running hard for over two years. I mean, wide open. I barely seen my kids. I was traveling. I was chasing the man, as Billy tells me. I was, uh, I was trying to fix everything in just a couple of years to build me back up to where I believed I needed to be. You know, I can. My, my life is still very much unmanageable today, and I really don't know what to do without direction. Uh, without that third party, without inter, you know, divine intervention, I, yeah. I really don't do well. And um, so it slowed down, and the whole time my mind is fretting. You know, we're going to about money, we're going to about money, we're going to about money. At the same time, I'm able to spend a lot, and I mean a lot of time with my children over this past summer. And even sober, when I first got sober, you know, when the kids, I got twins, like I said, and they'd come in and I would split, man. I'd go to the gym, I'd hang out in meetings all day, I wouldn't come home. I mean, I wasn't a dad. I used to tell Brad all the time, Brad, I want to be a good dad. He said, why don't you just try being a dad? And I wasn't able to. I didn't know that, but I wasn't a dad. I wasn't even present, right? I was non-existent. I was just a physical form sitting there. And today I'm present with them. And through this summer, I, it hit me around the end of the summer, I realized one day that we have our own relationship now. And I do it all, man. I do the cooking, the cleaning, and the, and the washing the clothes, and the wiping the butts, and the, and the busting hind ends, and the wiping up tears, and, and, you know, and holding them, and they come crawling to bed with me in the morning, and, and yeah. all that beautiful stuff. Yeah, man. And that's just, I mean, I... Miracles. That in itself, to me, is one of the biggest blessings I've been yep. given. And I've been given a lot of blessings. I've been given some people that are true, like you, that are true brothers of mine. Because like I said, I didn't have any. I didn't have any siblings. My uncle was my closest thing. And him, him dying of alcoholism saved my life. I saw the bitter end. Yeah. And that helped motivate me to get me. Because I knew, it's like I knew there was a epiphany light went on. I knew where I was headed. And I knew that's how I was going to go. If I didn't pull the trigger, that's how I was going to die. I was going to be slow and painful and destroy and hurt everybody around me. That was my path. For sure. You said that brotherhood thing. You know, I always get reminded of that on that last page of that book. It says, uh, he will help you create the fellowship you crave. And I had no idea the whole time that's what I was looking for. That's really what I was searching for. Every time I put a beer in me, it was looking for a buddy. I go back to this thing, you know, I mean, I can root my stuff down to the being the dude. You know, Really, all I want is not to be the last kid standing on the side when we're picking kickball teams, man. Fucking invite me in. Let me be a part of. That's what I wanted from the beginning, and I found that here. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. It's a really beautiful deal. It, uh, it's really amazing, actually. You know, and, and I still got this. So I was telling Billy one day, I got all this going on, and I said, Billy, it seems like a dream. Like it it's does. It's not real. He said, it's because you think you're not enough. Hmm. I still believe I'm not enough, yeah, and this too. shouldn't really be happening to me. Yep. But you look around and it's happening to me. Yeah, I got to keep on pinching myself. 
I mean, it's really happening. All these things are really happening in my life, and all. These, and I've done jobs, and, and things are coming on the business side, on the father side, on the IA side, and all these different things are coming in my life. And I just, I still believe I'm not enough. Yeah. Know? So I just keep doing this deal, and uh, I've always been taught, and it's something I learned here recently about myself that I've been struggling with. Of all the things I've done wrong, and I've done everything I can think of wrong, because I've done it my way. As I've been told, I gotta fit. Uh, my life in AA can't fit my AA into my life because when I fit AA into my life, I don't have no time for AA. Yep. And I've tried a long time to fit AA into my life. Yep. And even up here. And uh, that has been slowly changing. You know, you knew me when I first got here, I was pretty dark. Mm-hmm. I got in a dark spot and I've uh, been told recently that my life's back on again. They are. So, and it's, it's uh, and I've been told by a lot of old timers that it, it, it happens like that at times. We'll have times that, you know, we'll get off the beam and back on. And nice certain trials and low spots. But those trials and low spots are what get me uncomfortable enough to grow. Yep. Love that. So I just do the deal. And, you know, I do what Brad taught me. He said, I'm not taking you to the book to get sober. I'm taking you to the book to get sober so that you take other alcoholics to the book. And that's what I do today. That is my primary purpose. Yeah, you walk through all those steps, you know, and you talk. You mentioned something about seeing that in yourself, and when not only doing this and only doing that. And usually, if somebody's not like we say, got the juice in their life, if their lights aren't on, if their juice isn't in their life, you know, usually if you talk to a guy, you'll find out where the hole is in that program. Uh, nine times out of ten, they ain't meditating. The other time, they're not sponsoring people. There's some other holes here and there, but uh, yeah, if you're. I was doing eleven to ten, little ten a little bit. I'm doing a whole lot of eleven, nine, twelve. Although I did learn, I didn't understand the second part of the 12 step when I was in Indiana on that road job. I understood help carrying the message. I didn't understand. I did not understand how to be a father or any of those things. I didn't know how to practice these principles in all my affairs. And I began to learn as I kept, as I built this relationship. I started practicing principles. I started being kinder. I started once in a great while because I remember one day I called Brad. And he said. What did you do today? And I did this, and I thought about this guy. I'm smiling. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Brian. He said, you thought about somebody for more than 30 seconds? He said, that's a miracle. Yeah. If you thought about anybody more than yourself for 30 seconds, it's a miracle. You know. And I've, I love when my sponsor pulls that because he's so, so many times I call him with some kind of bullshit, you know, and he will just turn it right around, you know, and like that's the Chuck Taylor's thing, that different pair of glasses thing instantly. It's like he, I can almost like visualize him take my glasses off my face and put some new ones on my head yeah. and go look at it now. It's you know? just a little change of perception to all yeah. this. And that's all it is to go from hell that's to That's what you said. You, you, I can't do this by myself. I can't. I got to have this fellowship and these people around me, you know, and I got to have that sponsor in my life. And I got to let him in, you know. I got to call him with all my stupid thoughts and all my stuff that I'm doing, you know. Or if, because if I'm not doing that, you know, I'm, I'm working contrary to what that book tells me to do. And I try not only drinking to do it by myself, I try to sober to do it by myself. Yeah, that's what I said. You can self don't fix self. You said earlier. We mm-hmm. don't the problem is not solved in the same consciousness it's created. I need I require I have to have the fellowship. I love Just it. Just as too, much man. as I've got to have newcomers. Yeah. And there's much difference between the membership and the fellowship. Anyone with a desire can be a member. But those walking the sunlight of the spirit, those doing the deal, doing these steps, those are the fellowship. Yeah. And our home group is full of them. Yeah, and new guys all the time, man. We give away so many new ch- one-year chips every year, you know, and um, that is really cool in itself. What's, what's a step cooler than that is we gave almost every single one of them two-year chips the next year, you know, and then that 
that momentum is, is there and established. And, right. and we're just so tight that people want to stay, right? They see oh, what yeah. we're doing. They see, they hear us and all that. And, and I'm part of it too now. You know, I come in seeing that. And now I'm actually get to be on the other side of it to stand there and, and be one of them guys. And that's, that's, that's pure miracle there too. You know, I was breaking in houses just a minute ago. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one last thing I got, and it's, it's, it's this deal. So I told you in the beginning, or at the beginning of the process, that the, the alcoholism is a three-part disease, physical, mental, spiritual. The alcohol is anonymous, the way I've been taught, and what I practice is actually works as a three-part solution. Steps, traditions, concepts. And the old sign that we don't have anymore because it got into copyright issue or something was a, was a pyramid, circle and a triangle. A triangle. Well, there's a reason there's a triangle is it's equal on all three sides, which means all three sides are equally important. The circle completes us. Right. Steps is the physical part. Traditions. So when I was in the steps before I started practicing traditions, I was still getting in conflict with one with everybody. I didn't know about unity and group conscience and all these things. And I started practicing these traditions, and I'm doing these today. I do them with the company. I do them everywhere I go. My children. It's amazing how easy it makes life, man. There's no conflict there. And then the service side is the spiritual aspect, physical, mental, spiritual. And I practice all three of these circle completes itself and these facades you know Bob White talked about it how he'd like to achieve it and I would too complete transparency this is exactly because you know when I still go to work I'm work Brian and I'm dad Brian you know and and just just be clear man be transparent I haven't achieved it yet yeah but when I do that when I do all three legacies it chips away at those facades and those masks that I've accrued so much over the years and that's kind of the ultimate goal before I do dust over would be to, if I had a dream, would just be transparent. Yeah. One day. I'm not there yet. Yeah. You know. Yeah, true authenticity. Yep. There was that sigh. Yep. I'm done. I told you. I hear it every time, man. It is too cool. Uh Another thing I liked is, you know, I know the picture thing is something that we don't like, man, but... Uh, there is something about seeing the energy in our man when he's talking about this stuff, man. And you and you 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 glow that through your facial features and, and your eyes, and and to like see that because that's something these listeners miss out on is that I get to take part in is watching you tell this stuff and see like that authentic Brian telling this story and and, and knowing it and believing it. And I think they hear it through the voice too, man. But there's something cool about getting to look at you while you're doing it because you're definitely uh, the lights are on and the emotions are are visible. And, uh, and I know that when you're sharing with me, uh, every bit of it is authentic. So thank you for that, man. It's uh, cool. So thank sound you, like you had a cl- concluding thought there. You did. Yep. I always like to offer that because uh, in case somebody, uh, but you, a lot of people come in here and they get their own concluding thought sitting there. So uh, we'll wrap this thing up. I'll hit those two things. Thank you for coming in today, man. I've been Thanks trying to get you here and uh, uh, get you in some of them round tables too where we do some of that deal where a few of us are sitting around talking in a circle that's so uh, we need you in that circle man you got a lot of power in your in your speech and your in, in the experience and stuff you get to share uh dtmww.net that's my little handyman woodwork for if you're in the louisville metro area 12-step spiritual recovery a book by james christopher Cohn, the 12 steps for everybody or a deeper dive for those that are uh, currently in the work and familiar with it and the music wrapped around this podcast is uh, by darren frank hey if you're not having a blast in your recovery it's your own damn fault and thank you all for allowing me to participate in my recovery in this manner today
Peace out. Greetings, folks. This is the Colonel. You may remember me from episode 126 about nicotine recovery. Well, I'm here with this week's public quit announcement for those wishing to add nicotine to your recovery roster. This PQA is brought to you by DTM Woodworking and the January 2018 quit group known as The Fury. I've experienced more than a few instances in my life where I had to make decisions that I was not fond of or even making of my own accord. Well, that is today's topic as it relates to recovery. Today I'm going to ask, is this quit yours? Of the many failures I've experienced while trying to conquer my demons, nicotine being the most notable, one thing was constant amongst them all. Those quit attempts were always for someone else. I was making promises to others, deciding to make the attempts for others, be it for friends or family. Well, unless you internalize that commitment and believe in it, you are doomed to fail every time. Sure, you will follow the rules and make a good show of it for a few months, maybe even a year or two. But deep down inside, you are looking at this effort as a short-term inconvenience. You will quit just long enough to get the heat off, then you can once again relish in the warmth of your substance of choice. Folks, take it from me. Whether you choose to believe me or not, this simple question is designed to help you through one of the hardest parts of any recovery, which is admitting to yourself that you have a problem and that you are powerless against it. Sound familiar? So I ask again, is this quit yours? Well, my friends, this has been your PQA for the week. Take it from Dan and I. It all gets better, and you only need to worry about staying quit today one day at a time. Quit on and carry on, my friends, from a local battle.
Yes, it is. 